Greetings, listeners in Listenerland. Welcome to St. Louis in Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston, where we size up current and historic events involving people, places, and things in areas such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, government, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports. We originate from the Gateway City and connect to what's going on regionally, nationally, and internationally. Valerie Battle Kinzel is a Nashville, Tennessee native. She's a writer for 40-plus years. She's been writing for newspapers, corporate public affairs departments, ad copy agencies, Mm -hmm. school district communication. She's been a freelance writer, researcher. Her grandmother instilled a lifelong learning of history for her, lifelong love of history, I should say. She's the author of What's With St. Louis, The Quirks, Personality, Charm of the Gateway City, also, Lost St. Louis, Lost Landmarks of the Gateway to the West, Ooh. another book, St. Charles, another book, Columbia, and we're going to talk to her about her new book today that explores the history of St. Louis as a fashion center, and it's a pre-order. It comes out May the 1st. It has hundreds of historic images, 224-page hardcover book, and the book is entitled Ready to Wear, A History of the Footwear and Garment Industries in St. Louis. Wow. Valerie, welcome to St. Louis in Tune. Thank you for having me today. Wow, you really have touched a nerve for me because I love history too, and I love St. Louis history. I haven't read your other books, and I need to get those oh, yeah. because they sound great. And they, this one is just stupendous. I'm very familiar with the Washington Avenue Garment District mm. and loved reading about how where buildings were, what was in them prior to how we know them now. And it's a great book, so thanks for uh, writing that. What was the your motivation for doing that? It's for Roundabout Story. My husband has been in the footwear business, as has his father before him and his other father, a longtime association with International Shoe Company. And my husband remembers going to the warehouse that is now City Museum to pick up shoes. I, Being a history nerd, I looked around and I didn't see much was written about the history of the footwear industry, I started digging, and the more I got into shoes, then the research expanded to clothing. Wear clothing, and that's a whole different segment, but the book touches on both aspects. Yeah, I was writing some things down as I was reading, and I was trying to come up with something that had the same first letter, and I had furs, footwear, and fashion. And it really describes where we've come from, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes, it does. St. Louis's history began as fur trading village, or just a little stop on the Mississippi. The founders of St. Louis came up from New Orleans, and because of its location close to the Missouri and the Illinois rivers, as well as on the banks of the Mississippi, and right in the middle of the country, it was just pretty much a natural that it would become a transportation crossroads. And it did, and started with the fur trading and just developed from there. Uh, go into that a little bit more, because I, I think people, there's an adversity to, to fur, and that began when I was a teenager, and I know when Mark was a teenager also. Like, when we were really young, you'd see people with furs, and Boy, it was something. It was a big yeah, deal. It was. And then it yes. went out of style, more out of favor rather than style, mm-hmm. and Discuss what kind of furs we're talking about and how they were utilized. Okay. The the fur selection that came through St. Louis, and St. Louis had warehouses that were along the riverfront that were part of what is today where the 
Gateway Arch sits. And so things were easily unloaded from river boats and flat boats. But it ranged from otters to beavers to squirrel. There were five different kinds of squirrels to mink. And even if you can believe this, skunk. And there was a company called Mass and Hawk in St. Louis, and they would pay the postage. You could just send your furs through the mail. This company existed up through about the middle of the 20th century. The only thing they asked was that if you were going to send skunk pelts, please send it express mail. (laughs) I wonder why. Yes. Yeah, so there were just all kinds of buffalo. Uh, there was a lot of trade with Native Americans, some of the explorers that were going to explore the western part of the United States ended up trading with a lot of the Native Americans and buffalo hides. Beaver was a really hot commodity back about the middle of the 19th century, especially in England. There were beaver hats, if you remember the tall oh, yeah. stovepipe hat that Abraham Lincoln had. That was a beaver skin hat. And I was really surprised when I was reading your book that the number of furs and I should say pelts that were exchanged in a year and how St. Louis really was pushing New York City and pushing the East Coast, I should say, as it relates to pelts and furs. And then even how that kind of propelled forward with garments and shoes, and it just really developed St. Louis as this hub and what I'm going to call a mecca for the production of all of those things. Yes. There was a gentleman named George Warren Brown. He was the founder of what became Brown Shoe Company, which is now Calaris. Long time history, 1878. He um, decided that he thought he had been on the East Coast. That's where all the footwear was manufactured, mostly around Massachusetts, up the East. So he thought, I can do this. The furs, the river, the transportation, trains were starting to, the bridges were being built across the river. He thought, I can do this. I can have production in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. So he did. He started it and it just took off and skyrocketed. And again, with the, the clothing, there were some just uh, fascinating stories about riverboats that came through with bales of cotton and things. And then the bales of cotton landed, ended up being material and fabric. There were lots of um, seamstresses and tailors in St. Louis. And then it just developed into more ready-to-wear. And those were those uh, seamstresses and those individuals that kind of worked in this industry. A lot were immigrants that had come into the country and even some people here within the city that had been here. But discuss how businesses used that kind of labor and the buildings that they built for them. Because I was reading the hours. It was like, holy smokes. There wasn't a lot of time to do anything else but work. No. Most companies, their employees worked 10 to 12-hour days, six days a week, and were paid very small amounts. The men were paid higher wages than the women. Even at that time, there were children employed in some of the footwear factories and the garment factories. People from Europe that settled in St. Louis, uh, a lot of Germans, they had a strong work ethic. They also many times had large families. 
And they looked at children as just another means to earn some more money to support the family. They were not opposed to child labor. But also, one of the foot companies in St. Louis at that time, because there was such a strong group of German immigrants that seemed to be wanting the jobs, they had lessons, English lessons that they offered at night, and also built some housing near down what it would be downtown St. Louis right now for some of their employees. Now the yeah, and that was I found that really fascinating that the employer gave that kind of information and gave that kind of assistance to uh, the workers there that, hey, let's help you out here. And I know the conditions were less than favorable, as they would be now, and I know that there were some kinds of you know, unionization as things progressed and conditions tried to. There was no OSHA back then, and as conditions right. tried to be improved. But the some of the buildings that we are familiar with, you mentioned the city museum being linked to International Shoe. Talk about some of those yes. buildings that we know now, but what were they back then? Okay, the one where City Museum is, if you've ever been there and you have come down, there's a slide, and it will give you a pretty good jostle as you come down. Those were part of the conveyor system in the warehouse at one time. Also, the spindles on some of the staircases, they have been painted and decorated and such. Those were also spindles that were used on the conveyor lines. Another interesting piece of history that goes along with International Shoe Company was that Tennessee Williams, who was born and spent his formative years in St. Louis, he also worked there. His father worked there. He worked there in the summers, and he absolutely hated it. But he got the inspiration for some of his characters, for some of his books, like The Glass Menagerie, from his encounters with workers at International Shoe Company. And they also took over the, I shouldn't say took over, they purchased the Lemp Brewery mm-hmm. also for storage yes. for, for a time. And yes. matter of fact, you can still mm-hmm. see on the smokestack, I think it is ISCO on the smokestack now. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's correct. Also, the last hotel, if you have ever been to events or anything down there, it's a very nice hotel that was part of the uh, Roberts Johnson Rand headquarters building. And What's really great, I think, is they maintained a lot of the architectural elements. And many of the buildings that housed the companies, the warehouses and such, they were actually built by people that built some of the other wonderful buildings in St. Louis, like Union Station and some of the mansions in the Central West End and such. So they they didn't spare expense. Those were not just thrown-up buildings. They really had a lot of details, gargoyles, intricate stonework. If you're ever walking around Washington Avenue, there is the cobblestone zipper look that runs down the middle of what was the business district, and that's giving a nod to the garment industry. And then there's also at night, there are some little lights that simulate buttons. And that's a nod to also the industry. And if you look up, okay, so you look down at that on the street, the middle of the street, but then look up and look at some of the wonderful details. It's just beautiful. And obviously, people have made residences and businesses and such out of some of these buildings. And reuse is a good thing. Absolutely, absolutely. There was something that you have on one of the pages where you talk about the White House 
And I was like, and it was, and I'm trying to remember the company that had that, was it a shoe company that had that particular? That was Brown Shoe Company. That was Brown yeah. Shoe. And is that building now gone or is that building still standing? Yes. Sadly, that building is gone, but George Warren Brown, who brought the industry to St. Louis, he was somewhat forward-thinking. St. Louis at that time, the late 1800s and on into the 20th century, was predominantly coal-fueled for heat and such. And if you've ever seen pictures, particularly the City Hall building, buildings were covered with smut and dirt and black streaks. So George Warren Brown, when he went to build this this new headquarters for himself. He had it done with a fire-glazed white type of stone, and all they had to do was just rinse it off or let the rain rinse it off. It never had to be power-washed or power-scrubbed the way many of the buildings did in downtown St. Louis at that time. And I think right next to where that building was was a building for Washington University, and now that building's gone, but in its place is what is now called monogram on Washington, and they have that white glaze on the outside also. It's very stunning in the sunshine. Mm-hmm. Huh. It's very stunning. Mm-hmm. That's why, mm-hmm. so the White House. Huh. That, that's why it got the name the White House, yes. Now, you mentioned also in the book, before I ask this question, tell people what a last is, because you mentioned the last hotel, and I had never heard about a last until I went to the last hotel for in their restaurant, and I was like, what in the world is this? And it all makes sense. But would you describe what a last is? And then I'm going to get to another question relating it, to shoes. Okay. Okay. It's part of the equipment used to uh, mold the leather and to form the shoe. There are many steps. Like, I think mm, in the old days, it was like anywhere from 100 to 150 different individual steps before there was automation so much. But a last is is what's used down to help form the shoe. The leather is stretched and sewn and glued around the last, like for a particular size. Interesting. And with all of those parts, as I was reading in your book, they, they developed this process where one person would do the cutting, and that was a very valuable person because you wanted to get as much as you could out of a skin. Sure. And then different people did different things. It wasn't just one guy did the whole shoe like that, and that kind of transformed the industry. But my question relates yes, to... They found, go ahead. No, I just I was going to say it, they found that it was time... It, it cut down the time production. If you had one person do production line, it was early production line assembly, and it was a lot. I guess, quicker, and so it costs less to produce the shoe. But yes, the cutter, the man that could see the hide and he could picture the pieces and he could do it just in a matter of minutes, just cut it out. And so the least possible weight was ideal, and he was usually one of the highest paid people in the shoe factory. And is that part of that new manufacturing process that you mentioned the assembly line type thing? Yes. Yes, yes. And yeah, he got it first. He got the hide first, and then it would go to the different steps and processes. And then there were machines that changed how that whole thing, too, with the the sewing machines and being able to go through the leather. And when did that really hit the scene? Right around the late 1800s, early 1900s. And that really sped things up, obviously, the automation and the assembly line production. 
Was that also kind of a propeller, a propellant for the garment industry also, for clothing, for hats, that now you have these sewing machines, now we can do all this stuff? Yes. In St. Louis, there was there were lots of seamstresses, as I said, and women would often be given tasks for certain dresses. They would work for a company, and they were able to take handwork home, like sewing on intricate laces and buttons that were popular at the time. They could take it home in lots and bring back, like, say, they would sew lace on 40 collars, and they could do that at home. So this was a popular job with uh, women that might have had young children at home. They could Uh still be at home and do that and then take this whole lot back to the company, and then the company would then put these pieces together. But, yes, the sewing machine was really the impetus behind the advancement of the ready-to-wear clothing industry. Yes. I can really see then that kind of combines with that late 1800s when these buildings and early 1900s when these buildings were built because now we can have this mass production and we're going to set up a a place where we can put these machines and we can put a lot of people and really increase our our production level, which really happened quite a bit and made St. Louis the second highest in comparison to the East Coast in New York. Isn't that correct? Or correct me if I'm wrong there. Yes. No, that, that is true. At one point... St. Louis was second to New York City as far as garment production. And to get into a little bit different topic, the junior clothing segment was founded in St. Louis, and that was in the 1930s. Washington University had a fine arts department, and some of their design students had come up with dress ideas and dress patterns and whatnot. And there was a gentleman named Mr. Sorger, and he saw some of these, and he thought, wow, he was in the garment industry. And so he had some mock-ups made based on these designs and patterns of these Washington University students, and they sold out instantly. And thus was born the junior clothing segment. He observed that younger women did not necessarily want to wear the same clothes as their mothers and grandmothers, which up until that time, the 1930s, 20s, pretty much the clothing was just mirrored. It didn't matter what generation you were. So these junior dresses were just, they were young and appealing, and they just sold out. And there were people from New York and also from California who came to St. Louis at least twice a year to order and to get garments to take back to the coast. A lot of people don't realize that, but we were very fashion-forward for about 30, 40 years. Yeah, I thought that was very fascinating, that all the way into the 60s, Mark, we were like the place to come (laughs) to get the latest in fashion on some of those things. I can't imagine that wearing, if you're a girl, wearing the same thing your mom and your grandmother wears. It just doesn't make sense to me, but... (laughs) <laughs> a little frumpy, perhaps. Yeah, yeah that's I a great word for it. That is a word, yeah. Yeah, that, that was a really important thing, I, I think, in your book that uh, you brought out and that we really don't hear a lot about in St. Louis. It's, it's another first for St. Louis that needs to be advertised, especially down in, in that Washington area right. Avenue corridor. Right. You know? The thing now, though, yes, the, the industries have dwindled 
since the 60s, but with the St. Louis Fashion Fund, which was founded in 2014 in St. Louis, and they were located on Washington Avenue, they have been successful under the helm of Susan Sherman, who was a co-founder, bringing young people, entrepreneurs, seamsters, seamstresses, jewelry makers, unique jewelry, and handmade footwear, too, bringing them back to St. Louis, back to that Washington Avenue area. So that's a good thing. So there's a resurgence in interest in fashion in St. Louis. Matter of fact, 25% of the proceeds from your book are going to go to the St. Louis Fashion Fund, correct? Yes, yes. Pre-orders are being taken. There's a website called stlfashionbook.com. And if you pre-order through that, 25% of the proceeds will go to the St. Louis Fashion Fund. Now, I know we're going to be going to a break in about three minutes. So I'm just prepping you if you can stay over. I have more questions here. And it deals with ancillary industries. And what I'm talking about are like thread, zippers, getting the cloth. We always think about, okay, here's the dress, but you have to have all these other things, scissors, all of the things that make the dress. And I'd like to also get into hats because there still is a hat store on Washington Avenue, Levine's. Is it Levine? Okay, I was saying, yeah. Yes. We used to call it Levin, but it's Levine. I think it's Levine. It's probably Levine. Levine, Levine. And and then uh, a question as it relates to patterns, because when I was growing up, my mom would go and buy a pattern, like a junior pattern for my sister. Oh, that's sister. right. I and then she would lay those. the pattern out on the, right. she'd pick out what kind uh-huh. of fabric and do all that stuff. And I want to talk about where that came from. Did that kind of come out of this? What did your research find? That's the direction I want to go with that, okay? Yeah. Okay. Sure. We can talk about that now. We can do break, whatever you want to do. And I'd like to um, find out where, yeah. the, where the zipper came from. Where, does anybody know where the zipper originated from? That's a good question. I don't know the answer to I that. don't either. But what a great thing. I think I'm going to, yeah, I'll see if I can Google that. When did it, the zipper start and when did it, when did it come into? I guess when, when people got tired of buttons or, yeah. or, or Velcro is another. Now, why, why do men's buttons button on one side instead of the on women's button on the other side? Have you ever noticed that? Yes, I do. Do you know that answer, I, Valerie? I, I actually do. I do not. I do. No, I do I, not know the answer. Oh, to Mark that. knows the answer. I do Mark, know what's the, the answer? <laughs> setting you up for this. It goes way, way back to because uh, guys used to have a sword and they could reach in and grab their sword and bring it out. That's what I was told anyway. Is that why we always see Napoleon with his hand in his shirt? Could be. He's probably got his hand on his sword in or there. Or was he scratching his belly oh, or something? Oh, I think it was or? probably scratching. It was probably some so, kind of So rash. women didn't was have a sword, so they. Would have to put their left hand in. Is that no, it, it was this. Is how it was explained to me years ago that that, that men had swords under their coat, okay, and so their coat would button that way, so they had easy access to the sword. Makes sense. I Makes mean, sense. I could almost go with it. I mean, I'm serious, but it was this is I, I, honestly we had a conversation about it years ago. Okay, I can't tell you my sources. I'd have to kill you. No, I don't even know what my sources are. <laughs> Okay, all right. We'll find out some of his sources over the break. Folks, we'll be back with our next segment. You're listening to St. Louis in Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston on the U.S. Radio Network.
St. Louis Intune strives to bring you informative, useful, and reflective stories and interviews about current and historic issues and events that involve people, places, and things. Our topics cover a wide range, such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and even sports. And that's just to name a few. While St. Louis In Tune originates from the Gateway City and covers local topics, we connect to what is going on nationally as well. If you enjoy what you hear, please take time and like and share and subscribe to this show and listen to other previous shows that can be found on our website, stlintune.com. That's stlintune.com. Or on your favorite podcast platform, that's stlintune.com. STL intune.com and if you've got an idea that you'd like for us to examine a little deeper let us know by dropping us a note at stlintune at gmail.com that's stlintune at gmail.com St. Louis Intune heard Monday through Friday on the usradionetwork.com and many great radio stations around the US and of course right here in St. Louis our website again is STL Intune.com. We want to hear from you. STLintune.com. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston. We are talking to Valerie Battle Kinzel. She is the author of Ready to Wear, a history of the footwear and garment industries in St. Louis. And we do have an answer for why men's shirts and coats button differently than women's clothes and buttons. I hope I'm right. Okay. You are. This is from the Smithsonian Magazine, so it's a very reputable source. (laughs) Okay. That during the Renaissance and Victorian era, women's clothing was more complicated and more elaborate than men's clothing. You had the petticoats, the corsets, the bustles, all that kind of stuff. Rich men often dressed themselves, their female family members who had servants dress them out of luxury and necessity. And to make it easier for the servants to button up their employer's dresses correctly, clothiers might have started, the keyword might, have started sewing buttons on the opposite side. Eventually, mass production of women's clothing kept those buttons that same way. That's one explanation. Okay. The other explanation is what Mark talked about. Cha-ching. Yeah, cha-ching. Okay. Yeah, he wins the... Cha-ching award. <laughs> it's, it deals with military uniforms, and male soldiers often drew their weapons with their right hand. Building their clothes with the buttons on the right side would have made it a lot easier to adjust and unbutton their free left hand. But these are far from the only theories that seek to answer oh. this question. Okay? Thank you very much. I'm here every Friday night. Okay. <laughs> That's a trivia question. All right. So there we go, Valerie. We helped answer that one. I've learned something new today. We, yes. we learn you. something new all the time when we do this show. That's right. That's right. <laughs> we always take those exit ramps. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. Now, we're go- now we're getting on the on-ramp to go okay. back to, right, to right. the interview here. Okay. So I was, you know, I also looked up Zipper. It's a little bit more involved, and I didn't want to get into that. Yeah. Uh, and actually, it would be more interesting, the origin of the word zipper. I understand, you know, uh-huh. how we know it now, but back then it was called something, some mechanical something. Mm-hmm. But uh-huh. I'm not going to get into that. Okay. So the ancillary industries that were, that popped up also around Washington Avenue to assist in this whole production of clothing and shoes and hats, 
dis- discuss some of those. We're talking about thread and zippers and cloth and even going to the hats. Right, uh, buttons. Yes, yeah. There was also oh. a company called Landis Machine Company that made a lot of the automated machinery that was used in the factories. That was headquartered in St. Louis. And it was really necessary to have lots of different suppliers close by. For example, in St. Charles, there was once a heel factory, as in men's heels, men's and boys' heels. And it was located in what is now Blanchette Park. A lot of people don't know that. But what some of the shoe manufacturers found was that as more and more interest in organizing labor unions happened in the city. They went to smaller towns like St. Charles, Columbia, Marshall, Kirksville, even some over in Illinois, and would come to town. These small towns maybe didn't have that much in the way of revenue generation. They come and say, if you will provide the land and the utilities for us, we will build a factory here, and this will therefore employ many of your townspeople and will be a boost to your economy. And so there were many of those all around, like I said, Missouri and Illinois. Later on, like 20s, 30s. And some of those buildings are still standing, too. The one down in Cape yes. Girardeau, uh, Herman, Missouri, I think, still has some of their shoe original shoe buildings standing. Washington, Missouri, Wow. also. Wow. And hats, they just they didn't all of a sudden come on the scene. They were always there, but with the pelts that were around and even if you go down to Levine Hat Store right now, you can get a beaver felt hat. Wow. And so was there's the, what, the bee hat building. There was several, there was another one. I can't off the top of my head, but. There were lion, something called lion hats. There was the Harvest Hat Company, which really, if you think about people like farmers, especially like out in the fields, and they wear those larger brimmed straw hats. That was started here in St. Louis with an idea that came from another part of the world. But the gentleman was from St. Louis. He started his company here and literally sold millions and millions of those harvest hats. Hmm. Plus, the World War One and World War Two productions needed they, St. Louis supplied uniforms. They provided leggings. They provided millions and millions of pairs of boots. There were three big companies that got selected to provide that. They provided some of the helmets, the helmet liners, things like that. There was a company called Alligator Oil Cloth, which was an early predecessor to, like, raincoats. And they provided many thousands of raincoats for World War I soldiers. And is that, I'm looking right at that, the Alligator Alley. It's the St. Louis's Alligator Oil Clothing Company, specialized in mm-hmm. waterproof clothing. And oh, yeah. they're done now, they're gone, or have they yes. moved somewhere else? No, it, it, from what I understand, they are no more. And it's really sad to see a lot of these industries either going out of business or going out of favor, or very few people wear hats nowadays, not like it used to be back in the day. No. And, so I, I look at, and I understand, and how trends change and things like that. Where did, as things died down, where did the industry go to, or did it go overseas? That was really probably the demise of a lot of the industries in St. Louis. In the 60s, 70s, with, uh, there were higher expenses as production costs, labor costs, and people went 
took their business overseas. Now, did you find anything Labor about? Was cheaper. Yeah, it was cheaper. Yeah. Did you find anything mm-hmm. on patterns that we had talked about earlier? Those how those were implemented or devised? Yeah, when they first the seamstresses that were first in St. Louis, eighteen hundreds, they would take a person's body measurements. Uh, a woman's or a tailor would take a man's at different points, their elbows all around their neck, their the lengths between their shoulders and their natural waist, just all these kinds of things. And they would come up with, usually on newspaper or just like craft paper, what we think of like paper bags, and they would develop. A woman would come in maybe with an idea or a, a picture from, there was a book called Godey's Ladies Book, and it had pictures, illustrations. So a woman would come in, get all these measurements taken, and then the seamstress would come up with a concept, an idea, and lay all this out on paper and then come up and oftentimes would do a rough costume, a rough dress before the actual finished product was done with all the detailing and the -hmm. buttonholes and Mm -hmm. lace and whatever. Yeah, so it, it was a natural progression from those early paper patterns to what you were discussing, like McCall's and Simplicity. I was that person, too, that used to make a lot of clothes. Yeah. That's an interesting process. When you think about how all of that fits together and the evolution of the industry and what was involved with providing all of the ancillary materials and kinds of things Mm -hmm. to make what we wear work. Now, I want to go to two more things here. One is mergers of companies. And you talked about there was a company with a man, I think his name was Famous, and then you talked about the bar company. And I know Famous Bar, so mm-hmm. I'm presuming that they merged some time down the road? Yes, that was another thing that really was helped put St. Louis on the map, too. As I mentioned earlier, as people were moving west to explore and form new communities and whatnot out west, St. Louis was really the jumping-off point, thus the Gateway Arch. And so a lot of people, they were in wagons and they had horses and whatnot. This was before the railroads. They would come, and St. Louis was the last really big stop to get supplies. And so as a result, there were dry goods stores, what we later came to call department stores that had just about anything anybody could need. And people that were headed west stopped and loaded up supplies, everything from cloth to stoneware or whatever you needed to to live a life out on the road. And so the dry goods stores really grew, yes. And so Famous was one store, Bar was another. There there were many dry goods stores in St. Louis. And some of these manufacturers, and maybe even the dry goods stores too, they had giveaways. And Mark's going to He's going to have a big smile on his face when I start mentioning these because when I looked at them in your book, I was like, wow, that took me back to when I was a kid. Paul Parrott. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Paul Parrott shoes. Right. Weatherbird, Buster Brown. Oh, my. And the giveaways to be able to, it was the the promotional thing to get people to buy. Would you discuss a couple of those items that you found to be fascinating? Okay, St. Louis, uh, the shoe companies really started the the impetus behind what has evolved into kids' meals and giveaways and such. But the one was Buster Brown. That was part of Brown Shoe Company. That was their children's line. And there was an artist 
named Richard Outcalt. He he did a cartoon that was very popular in the paper right around the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. And George Warren Brown, again, he had a huge production with the 1904 World's Fair. He even had a shoe factory built in one of the buildings at the World's Fair. He saw and met Richard Outcalt, this artist, and he bought the rights to one of the characters whose name was Buster Brown and also his little dog, Ty. So then Mr. Brown hired a very small stature person. He was actually a grown man. He was not a child. But this guy went on a road show around the country, very popular. He had a little dog that went with him. And kids just came. They went to all these small towns on trains, and they would have little giveaways then at the stores that carried the Buster Brown shoes, also with Red Goose shoes. That was also started in St. Louis. And I don't wow. know about you, but I remember as a child, if you bought a pair yes. of Red Goose shoes, there was like a statue of a Red Goose. And if you pulled its neck, a golden egg would yes. come out of its dear ear. <laughs> and there was a prize. Yep. Yeah. Had a little clicker so, inside. Uh, yeah. A little clicker. Yeah. Yes. Yes, there were, and there's all kinds of clickers. Some of the pictures in the book were the courtesy of Antiques Warehouse, which is down in South County, and Greg and Ann Romberg have just a fabulous collection of anything imaginable as far as advertising gimmicks or lights or signs or whatever, and so many of the pictures are courtesy of Greg of things like clickers and all the, the shoe companies for children had clickers or they had tops or just little gimmicks pen knives just just it was an incentive i guess if you have children and you bought happy meals because there was some toy that your child wanted Uh and and the penny incentive too where they gave pennies away lincoln pennies that's right yes and that was of course at a time when the penny was actually worth Penny. more and it was yeah. actually but copper was... <laughs> or something like it yeah, yeah. that was a pretty big deal yeah. yeah yeah it was a big deal it's amazing back then the creativity uh-huh. to market and get things around the country and now we rely on a lot of computerized things or social media or that kind of media and back then you really had to get creative with what you were doing to sell your product so my last question and i save this because there's always something that an author finds in their history journey about the topic that they're studying Mm -hmm. that was like, holy smokes, I never knew that, or wow, that is just incredible. What was that moment, or what was that particular thing? I actually had two. I'll I'll talk about the first one. Okay. Okay. There was a woman named Elizabeth Keckley, and she was a seamstress, and she apparently was very good, and she was African-American. She was enslaved. And she, her work was just fabulous. And her enslaver allowed her to work some for other ladies in St. Louis as well. Through this, she was able to save some money to buy her freedom and the freedom of her young son. And then she decided, once she was free, she decided to move to Washington, D.C. And there she quickly established the same reputation that she was just, Primo dressmaker. She just wonderful to deal with, spot on. She just she knew the ladies' needs. So Mary Lincoln discovered and heard about her, oh, and 
had her do some of her dresses, and then she was so impressed by this African-American woman's skills and whatnot that she had her exclusive for probably four years while she was in Washington. Mm. And I just I found that was fascinating, but her start was in St. Louis. Right, and Elizabeth Keckley also did dresses for Jefferson Davis's wife. She paid back Uh her... The, actually, the people, some of her clients mm-hmm. donated money, and you correct me if I'm wrong, Valerie, they donated money to help her buy a friend, but she worked and paid them all back. Oh, my. So it was yes. all free and clear. Oh, that's great. And she was yeah. around here when Dredd and Harriet Scott did their first suit back in, I think yeah. it was about 1847. Mm-hmm. That wasn't decided until 1857, but she was around during this time, mm-hmm. so they may have crossed mm-hmm. paths. Who knows? Yes, very likely. And living downtown like that, yes, it's very likely they knew one another. Well, that's cool. The The book, folks, is called Ready to Wear, A History of the Footwear and Garment Industries in St. Louis. It's available for pre-order. Go to stlfashionbook.com, stlfashionbook.com. And you want to check out some of Valerie's other books, the... What's with St. Louis, the quirks, personality, charm of the Gateway City, and Lost St. Louis. Check some check some of those books out. Valerie, thanks very much for being on St. Louis in Tune. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you, gentlemen. I've enjoyed speaking with you. We appreciate you listening to this episode of St. Louis in Tune. If you enjoy this episode, please consider letting us know. The best way to do this is by rating us on Apple Podcast. You could even write a review. St. Louis in Tune is produced in cooperation with KWRH 92.9 FM and Motif Media Group. For St. Louis in Tune, I'm Arnold Stricker.